welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. All right, then. Climate change activism is not doing a very good job at stopping climate change. In fact, despite the recent surge in the popularity of climate change activism before the pandemic and the massive recruiting success of movements like Extinction Rebellion, Every year, we continue to set new records in fossil fuel burning and consumption. Sure, that burning decreased last year in 2020, but we can't count on a deadly virus that kills millions to save us from global warming. Or can we? Sure, it's difficult to protest now, but what will the climate change protest movement look like when protesters can protest safely again? With time not being on humanity's side when it comes to global warming and investment in alternative clean fuels dropping as the number of new oil and coal extraction projects in the pipeworks goes up, it appears there is no slowing down of our race toward environmental destruction. We'll discuss the state of climate change activism and speculate about the effectiveness of a more radical militant approach to fighting climate change in a few when we have the return of social ecology scholar Andreas Malm, author of the not provocative at all title, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. Andreas is also author of The Progress of This Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World, as well as Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming, which won the Isaac and Tamara Deutscher Memorial Prize for a new book published in English, which exemplifies the best and most innovative new writing in or about the Marxist tradition. Fossil Capital was also named one of our favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2015. You can find that interview as well as Andreas's 2018 appearance here on This Is Hell by searching on Malm, M-A-L-M, at thisishell.com. The last time Andreas was on in 2018, we spoke with him about his book, The Progress of the Storm, and you can also find that conversation at thisishell.com. Andreas is Associate Senior Lecturer in the Department of Human Ecology at Sweden's Lund University. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. If it's Tuesday, our producer must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you? How was your week? My week was good. I'm doing well. That's good to hear. Are you uh, looking forward to any boxing matches coming up or anything like that? How's the speed bag working out for you? Um, I don't have any matches coming up. Um, just training every day. It's good. Yeah, the speed bag's great. I really want to have a speed bag now. I've had speed bag envy ever since you mentioned it on the show. And me listening to my downstairs neighbor hitting a heavy bag on a regular basis. Now I kind of want both. But I have no room in my place. Jess, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are they going to call the austerity bill? <laughs> what are they going to call the austerity bill? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer in by the end of Thursday 
show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth this week, Jeff revisits the U.S. military's violations of the hospitality code. Jess will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question now following our guest. And you can see all of our listeners' responses right now at our Facebook page. You have been sending in some exceptional guest and topic ideas. So let's get to what you are sending us at chuckatthisishell.com. DMing us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio or messaging us via Facebook at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. We got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Olive, who we have talked to in the past, and I think we are supposed to meet here, her here during the uh, This Is Hell office hours in 2019, but unfortunately our paths didn't cross. But we got an email from Olive who writes to us from Cuba, about our interview we did last Thursday with Peter Eichler on opioid use and labor relations and their impact on rural politics. So yeah, we get emails from people in Cuba, which is very cool. Olive writes, Hi Chuck, I'm listening to your interview about the opioid epidemic and deindustrializations. It's reminding me of a fascinating TED talk I saw with a neuroscientist named Rachel Wurzman, W-U-R-Z-M-A-N, about how social isolation and loneliness feed addiction. I think this point of view can be linked to the view of lack of control that drives many to opioid use, a lack of control over their own lives, as perhaps people isolate themselves more when they feel a lack of control or a lack of purpose in their life. And within the frame of capitalism, people are only allowed that sense of purpose or fulfillment if they are fortunate enough to be productive in the economy and be doing something they love. I heard Wurzman's talk at a critical time when finished with the two biggest exams of my life thus far. I had sunk into a depression which I analyzed as the effect of no longer having meaningful quote-unquote work or being productive by studying for 14 hours per day. Then I began to look around me and I noticed my social environment, how living in a socialist country in Cuba is inherently more social than living in a capitalist one like the United States because human lives, relationships, and the time necessary to keep those relationships strong and healthy are valued higher than the values placed on work and productivity in the States, which gives people so little meaningful free time. Also, the overemphasis on work and productivity under capitalism causes shame and social stigma towards the many who are unemployed or underemployed, which in turn could lead to self-isolating and addictive behaviors. Now I'm wondering if anyone has written anything comparing loneliness, social isolation, addiction, social relationships, and happiness cross-culturally or in different economic systems, or if you've done any other interviews on these topics in the past. Olive then sends a link to the TED Talk article by Rachel Wurzman and a Washington Post article about it headlined, Neuroscientist thinks one way to fight opioid addiction is to tackle loneliness. Olive adds, I can't find any written publications by Wurzman, although the TED Talks website says that she's authored more than 20 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters in the fields of neuroscience, neuroethics, and policy, including Wiley's, the publisher's, number one most frequently downloaded article out of over 20 neurology journals in 2016. Also, she started a nonprofit called Seek Healing in Asheville, North Carolina, that provides support to users through human connection. Thanks, as always, for your great work. Take care. 
Olive. Now, when it comes to you're talking, you're asking us if we've ever done anything on uh, loneliness, social isolation, addiction, social relationships, happiness cross-culturally or in different economic systems. We haven't done the comparison, but we have done a lot of interviews on uh, loneliness, and you can find those at our website if you just go to thisishell.com and you uh, search on the word loneliness or search on depression. You can find a ton of interviews that we have done on the topic. Olive uh, is a MD candidate in the class of 2021 at Cuba's Escuela Latinoamericana de Medicina, which is really cool. See, I told you we have the best listeners. If it weren't for you, this is hell would suck. So thanks to all of you. But back to Olive. When you mentioned the overemphasis on work and productivity under capitalism causing shame and social stigma toward the many who are unemployed or underemployed, which in turn could lead to self-isolating and addictive behaviors, it reminds me about the anti-mask rallies at the beginning of the pandemic outbreak here in the States and how I mentioned closing workplaces meant losing your job temporarily or permanently and how under capitalism we define our self-identity through work and when that is taken from us, we lose that identity and replace it with Shame that can easily be provoked into xenophobia and lead to violence, which gets us back to what happened at the U.S. Capitol last Wednesday as the inevitable outcome of late capitalism or neoliberalism. So, yes, Olive, we will look into Rachel Wersman and see if we can find anything comparing loneliness, social isolation, addiction, etc. And uh, listeners, if you know of a guest or work on that topic, please send your suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. We also got an email from Andrew who writes, Good morning. I have a guest suggestion. Alexa Hazel. She authored the piece Hard Times, Martin Hagelin's This Life and the Pomodoro Technique, which you can find at the L.A. Review of Books. Her article is so interesting, uh, Andrew writes, as she analyzes the optimization and commodification of our time under capitalism through the lens of the popular Pomodoro Technique. Andrew adds, the book club book club I am a part of reached out to her and she led a fascinating two-hour discussion on our article. I'm sure that our This Is Hell community would benefit greatly from hearing Alexa's analysis. Thanks, Andrew. For those of you like me who have only heard of the Pomodoro technique but don't remember or never had any idea of what it is, well, according to Wikipedia, it's a time management technique that uses a timer to break down work into intervals, traditionally 25 minutes in length, separated by short breaks. Each interval is known as a pomodoro from the Italian word for tomato after the tomato-shaped kitchen timer that the creator of the technique used as a university student, which sounds like a horrible but fantastic way to optimize your time while commodifying it for capitalism and the market to control. But again, Andrew, yes, we will look into this because market control over our lives is a great, great topic suggestion because it's something that we've so normalized we often don't recognize or notice it. You can send us your comments, criticisms, both constructive and destructive alike, thoughts, topics, or guest suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. Message them to us via our Facebook page or DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. And unless you tell us otherwise, we'll likely share your writing, your suggestions, your criticisms on air. If you want to send us anything, something, some physical thing in the mail, you can do that too by addressing whatever you want to us here at This is Hell. This is Hell, 2251 West Devon, D-E-V-O-N. This is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 
60659. And if you send us something through the mail, we'll describe that to our listeners on the air as well. This is not the media. Thank God. This is hell coming up the state of the fight against climate change. Jess will have some more of your answers to this week's question from Al, which is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black. This is hell winter. Or, oh, sorry, uh, new gray on black anything. You can just pick out whatever you want from our list of merchandise that we have at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. But we have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Climate change activism really picked up globally before the pandemic with new vast movements taking place all over the world. Not that climate change was losing. In fact, more and more future projects to extract and burn fossil fuels are being planned seemingly every day. And if it were not for the pandemic, we would have likely again set records for fossil fuel being burned, which makes one wonder just how effective climate change activism is. Here to help us understand the current state of climate change activism returning to This Is Hell social ecology scholar Andreas Malm is author of the new book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Andreas. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's always great to have you on the show. And by the way, thanks for coming up with a title for a book that will not get me any interest from the FBI. I really appreciate that, Andreas. (laughs) Are you getting any grief over the title of the book? Some people, uh, that, some people who read the book uh, are disappointed that there's no actual manual in how to blow up a pipeline, and, th- and there are no concrete instructions for how to do it. Uh, that's the main disappointment so far that I've received. Uh, yeah. But that was already done in the anarchist cookbook, so why waste your time, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Andreas is the author of The Progress of the Storm, This Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World. We discussed that with Andreas back in 2018, and we also talked to Andreas back in 2015 about his book, Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming, which was named uh, one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is in 2015. And you can find both those interviews right now by searching on Andreas's last name, M-A-L-M at thisishell.com. Andreas is Associate Senior Lecturer at, in the Department of Human Ecology at Sweden's Lund University. You start by explaining that the manus- manuscript for your book was uh, completed before COVID-19 struck. As I write these words, the pandemic is killing some 2,000 individuals worldwide per day. This was back in March of last year. It also has political victims one of the first being the climate movement, whose high-flying popular mobilizations were punctured in an instant by the outbreak. The climate strikes that swept the globe in 2019 have been put on hold. What role does climate change, in your opinion, play in this pandemic? Because I, I fear a lack of activism can, la- can a lack of climate change activism can lead to a lack of awareness of whatever role climate change played, whatever contribution it made in potentially causing this pandemic. So what role does climate change, in your opinion, play in the pandemic? Well, that, that, that's a difficult question. Uh, 
I'm not sure that we know enough to say that climate change had any role in causing this particular pandemic. I don't know that there's evidence yet to say that, but scientists working in these fields tell us that rising temperatures increase the risk for pandemics of this sort because rising temperatures induce animals to migrate, including animals like bats that carry viruses around them. And, and bats are the prime natural reservoirs of coronaviruses, including the one that is now wreaking havoc on humanity. And uh, when, when animals migrate, they come to habitats that they haven't um, lived in before. They bump into humans and they shed their viruses. Uh, and uh, we can't exclude that there uh, was a role uh, of climate change in this pandemic because bats in China are known to migrate further into the, the, the center of the country because of rising temperatures. So they're, they're trying to follow the climate that they're adapted to. And when temperatures rise, that means naturally that they, they travel northwards. Uh, but but in the longer run, for sure, we'll see more pandemics of this kind, more infectious diseases coming from wildlife when when wildlife is in chaos because of because global heating is uh, messing up all uh, all habitats and all ecosystems. Now, uh, the role that the climate movement should have played, I think, in the pandemic, um, uh, it, it should have been out in the streets trying to uh, convince people, <clears throat> and it shouldn't be that difficult, that this pandemic is a symptom of the ecological crisis, uh, and not only climate change, but other aspects of the ecological crisis as well. And unless we, we deal with, with the, the drivers of pandemics such as this one, we'll find ourselves uh, in this situation again and again, uh, facing new diseases coming to us, from nature. And uh, there is a, a very uh, substantial scientific uh, uh, body of work to back up this claim. But the climate movement has agreed to suspend itself completely, unlike uh, quite a few other social movements uh, over the past year, notably the movement for black lives in the US, which uh, charged ahead after the, the murder of George Floyd, even though there was a pandemic, whereas the climate movement has done almost nothing since the pandemic started, which is very unfortunate in my view. You know, why has the climate change activism had such difficulty in adopting to a world where in-person protests are not allowed for concerns over public health and safety? What, what explains to you that lack of adapting? Because you would think, for instance, Prior to the to the pandemic, we were seeing a global uh, mass climate change movement taking place and an internationalization, a globalization of that movement happening. It's something that we forget. So what explains to you why that movement has had such difficulty in adapting to the pandemic? Yeah, it almost feels like another epoch or even aeon, what happened just just. Uh, a little more than a year ago in, in 2019 with, with precisely the wave that you're describing, the surge in climate activism across the world. And then it just fell off a cliff when the pandemic started. And what explains that? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure, but uh, some, some leading figures in the movement, including Greta Thunberg, the uh, instigator of the Fridays for Future or Climate Strikes movement, uh, went out saying that now it's all about the virus and we have to 
respect it and um, uh, yeah, you know just go home from the streets and only do digital activism and have our strikes online which is pretty pointless in my view and perhaps that attitude that that deference if you like that was not evinced by the the, the blm movement in in the us or by the abortion movement in poland or other instances of uh, of the social revolt that we've had through this pandemic this this deference this obedience almost or even meekness might have something to do with uh, what I uh, am sometimes slightly frustrated with about the climate movement that it is, uh, 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 how should I put it? It's it's very polite. It's very, uh, even though so much is at stake and we're in such a dire situation and uh, an emergency that, that just deteriorates by the month, uh, the climate movement is still very civil in its methods and keen not to break too many laws and appear to be overly militant and perhaps that has some parts some, that perhaps that's some part of the one part of the explanation for why the climate movement just agreed to essentially abolish itself when the pandemic started not abolish itself i mean it's in hibernation it's it's in paralysis and it's it's as so many of us in so many other movements are wait it's waiting for the pandemic to end so that it can uh, you know resume its activities but it lost all of the momentum that we had built up in 2019 and it will be difficult to regain that momentum although of course we'll have more climate catastrophes coming and that should should prod people to go back into the streets and into the squares and into the mines and uh, uh, targeting fossil fuel infrastructure perhaps at a higher degree of radicalism and militancy than before uh, but we'll see yeah i hope it kicks off very soon again because we can't really wait we can't we can't lose an entire year in 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 passivity uh, from the climate movement like we've done in the past year and i want to get to that politeness and passivity in a little bit but uh you also write that right of the pandemic that world capitalism has also had to close its shops like never before therein lies an opportunity emissions will plunge again just like after the financial crisis of 2008 for reasons entirely unrelated to climate policy which in itself is a good thing but since the financial crisis we've seen as you know we've seen nothing but more fossil fuel consumption setting records for consumption every year what opportunity do you see in a fossil fuel consumption slowdown caused by a pandemic once that virus has been Minimized due to a vaccine repeatedly in the media and from politicians, we hear a desire to return to normal. Will we just return to a normal of burning more and more fossil fuels each and every year as we did following the slowdown caused by the financial crisis and the pandemic? Well, yeah, the 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 risk for that is is uh, overwhelming, but the signs are contradictory and it's a little bit hard to to uh, to say because we don't know how this crisis will end we don't know how deep it will become we don't know if it will last longer than the uh, financial crash it's 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 a, it's a very different crisis because uh, yeah because of so many reasons it's it's much more intense the recession is uh, is is worse uh, but if a vaccine works, maybe things can go go back to business as usual quicker, and the and the rebound effect be be more dramatic than in two thousand and eight, nine, ten. We 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 simply don't know. 
But I think that the talk of a green recovery or of using the pandemic as an opportunity to shift away from fossil fuels, that kind of talk, if it's not going to be only uh, wishful thinking, needs to be backed up with some sort of social muscle, some sort of popular mobilization, because it's not going to happen by itself. That, that's been pretty clear by how uh, the key advanced capitalist countries have dealt with uh, the pandemic crisis and how they have injected uh, trillions of dollars into their economies. And countries like the US and Germany and France and the UK have pumped in astronomical amounts of money precisely into fossil fuel companies. Here in Europe, companies like Shell and Total and major auto producers and airlines are receiving uh, the bulk of the money uh, injected by uh, actors like the European Central Bank, uh, uh, chiefly responsible for managing this, this economic crisis. So they're, they're not doing anything like uh, killing the fossil fuel industry that's been to an extent weakened by, by this crisis. They are resuscitating it and uh, trying to, to keep it alive. Even though these companies, Shell and Total, for instance, are planning for a, an increase in the production of fossil fuels by between 10 and 30 percent in the coming decade, when we need to half emissions, uh, we need to half, cut, cut them by half emissions of CO2 to have a decent chance to avoid a total runaway uh, global heating. So, and and the the unfortunate thing here is that anything like a green recovery anything like using this crisis as an opportunity to break conclusively with business as usual presupposes uh, a mobilization of popular forces like we saw in 2019 but perhaps even more of it uh, unfortunately it's a very uh, it's a, it's a very um, how should i put it it's a moment that's not conducive to that kind of mobilization because in in a lot of countries, social movement activity is on hold, as we as we just mentioned. And you write that in 2018, for the third consecutive year, the amount of money flowing into upstream oil and gas, meaning infrastructure by delivering those fuels from under the ground, grew by six percent year on year. Six percent more capital was sunk into fresh drills, wells, rigs. Investment in exploration alone was projected to shoot up by 18% in 2019. You even point toward how the investments in alternative non-fossil fuels has been decreasing. So not only are we burning more fossil fuels than ever, the current plan is for more and more fossil fuels to continue to be burned year in, year out, setting records for climate change, causing fossil fuels to be burned on an annual basis. Andreas, is the public aware of how much the fight over climate change is being lost and that we are expanding fossil fuel extraction and even having less investment in alternative fuels? Uh, well, no, I mean, these are not numbers on the top of everyone's head uh, for, for sure. It's not like uh, this is uh, uh, intensely discussed here in Europe, and I don't think it is in the US either. Uh, I, I should say that some of these trends might have been modified by the pandemic. And uh, uh, there are instances of uh, the fossil fuel industry um, uh, suspending some investments and uh, shelving expansion because of, for instance, the plunging uh, oil price. 
in, in the wake of the pandemic. The question again is what happens when the pandemic is over or, or if, it, if it ever is. Uh, <clears throat> but the, the key takeaway from all of these reports about investment trends and things like that is that if investors have their way, uh, and if they continue to be showered in money like they are now when when states try to, to uh, buffer against the crisis, business as usual will just continue. And this means, uh, precisely as you're saying, it means drilling and exploring and digging up more and more fossil fuels. And the climate crisis is a cumulative problem. So that means that the more CO2 is added to the atmosphere because fossil fuels are burned, the worse the problem becomes. And the, the this expansion is inherent to how uh, capital works in this field. There, there's no, there's no uh, uh, private corporation that would voluntarily cease to grow and cut back production of fossil fuels. You, you're not going to see uh, Shell or Total do that. And uh, BP, when it speaks about, talks about going, uh, uh, climate neutral and things like that. They they don't offer any concrete plans for actually uh, diminishing their production. Rather, they're planning to expand it as well. And uh, the only way to, uh, to 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 break this constant expansion is to amass sufficient force to I think f compel states to uh, impose limits uh, on fossil fuel production and start to reduce it very, very quickly. And uh, uh, there are no signs yet that that is happening uh, spontaneously of its own without anything like uh, mass pressure from below. Well, why doesn't the market correct itself? Because you write the IEA, the International Energy Agency, sees glittering treasures ahead. ExxonMobil expected a profit in excess of 30% from its novel deep water fields off the coast of Brazil and Guyana. As ever, the financial picture for this line of business remained bright. The gas boom roared on, demanding new pipelines. Texas and the prolific Permian Basin is the epicenter of the development of new pipelines, the IEA said. But the steel snakes darted through the grass on other continents as well, their flammable breath about to reach, for instance, Sweden. Nowhere on the horizon of ongoing capital accumulation could a transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy be cited, despite the latter now being consistently cheaper, as noted by the billionaire's rag Forbes. Why keep burning the more expensive, more destructive sources of fossil fuels? Why hasn't the market corrected itself from rewarding fossil fuels that are not only more expensive, but more destructive to the planet. Yeah, because because the market or agents on the market, the key agents, the investors, the owners of means of production, the capitalists, to put it frankly, they don't go after the lowest prices. They are after maximum profit. That is the purpose of uh, investing capital to maximize profits. And uh, you, the ultra cheapness of renewable energy that we are now seeing developing, um, not the least solar PV, which produces some of the cheapest electricity ever in human history uh, around the world right now, is a very mixed blessing for renewable energy. 
because uh, it, it doesn't uh, involve any promise of great profits, precisely because it's so extraordinarily cheap. Once you've installed a, a solar PV uh, facility, you can virtually harvest the energy for free. But that means you don't have a product to sell. With oil, it's very different. Uh, and here again, the problem is that oil has become so awfully cheap for oil producers during the pandemic. But before the pandemic, when you had a, a reasonably high oil price, that was all, all the better for the investors because that, mean, that meant that the commodity that they produced, the oil, could be uh, sold and it fetched a price high enough to generate a profit. So uh, investors here are not looking for what's the cheapest technology to produce electricity or energy. Uh, investors are looking for where can I get most, uh, uh, the highest profit? Where can, where can I get the, the, the largest return on my invested money? Uh, so uh, the, 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 the idea that investors will automatically flock to the cheapest energy source is uh, profoundly flawed because uh, that's not what they're looking for. It, for humanity as a whole, it might be an enormous blessing that renewable energy is now so cheap. Uh, it's not only the energy source that we need to, uh, to, to limit the catastrophe of, of, uh, of global heating, it's also the cheapest source of electricity. But that might be precisely the reason why capitalists sh are shying away from it. Now, what's, what we're seeing in the world is we're seeing an expansion in renewable energy infrastructure. But so far, what it has done is it, it has only added to fossil fuels. So you have an expansion, you have an, uh, an all of the above strategy being implemented uh, on markets worldwide. So you have an increase in, in solar capacity and wind capacity. But what you really need to make uh, a difference for the climate is that you need to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy. So you need to, to desist from burning fossil fuels. As long as you continue burning fossil fuels and add more CO2 to the atmosphere, it doesn't matter how many wind turbines and solar PVs you build. And that, that fundamental transition entails uh, to be to be straightforward, it entails a liquidation of a whole uh, department of capital accumulation, namely making profit from the production of fossil fuels. And nowhere in the world do we see as yet any initiative to accomplish such a liquidation. So is the goal or should the mission of climate change activism be making fossil fuels less profitable and making alternative fuels more profitable? And how would you go about doing that if that's something that should be the goal? Yeah, that, that's that's definitely something that should be the goal. Well, I mean, the the idea that I throw out in my book to to fellow climate activists is that we sometimes like to think of ourselves as the investment risk. It's a slogan that's been used in the German climate movement, the one that I've uh, identified myself with mostly in, in recent years. Uh, we, we have said that we are the investment risk for capitalists who are planning to expand the lignite coal mines. And lignite coal is the, the dirtiest fossil fuel in the world and in no countries producing it uh, to a larger extent than Germany. 
And uh, uh, the idea is, is sound. Uh, we need to demonstrate to capitalists who continue to bank on fossil fuels that you cannot, uh, uh, you cannot feel that you own the world and you cannot trust that you will have those investments in safety. And we're going to, uh, to damage those investments, not, not people, not the investors as, as human beings, but the uh, machines that they have invested in that actually ruin this planet. And the, the strategy here would be to establish a kind of deterrence uh, against further investment in, uh, uh, in fossil fuel infrastructure. Now, establishing a deterrence of that sort would, of course, entail a Herculean effort from the climate movement and its allies, it would it would what it would mean it would mean uh, destroying enough uh, fossil fuel infrastructure pipelines, coal mines, um, uh, rigs, uh, and uh, what have you, and uh, uh, make it clear to capitalists that you can't invest in this any longer without running a serious risk of losing the money that you have invested. Uh, that that won't be easy, and I'm I'm not saying that this would would solve the problem of continued business as usual. Uh, rather, uh, what I argue in the book is that it would it might have to be one component of uh, a, a groundswell of activism that compels states to move in this direction. Because at the the end of the day, neither me nor any other climate activists. Uh, individually or in groups will will be in a position to make the the requisite decisions to shut this industry down. That kind of decision can only, if only potentially, be taken by state apparatuses. It's only a matter of of, of uh, you know forcing them to do so because they're not doing it on their own. You also write that to say that the signals of climate change have fallen on the deaf ears of the ruling classes of this world would be an understatement. Why do you blame the ruling classes? Aren't we all complicit in climate change every time we start our cars or ride public transportation even uh, that depends on fossil fuels or even every time we heat our home or build a fire? Are we not just as guilty for using fossil fuels for our own benefit as the ruling class is, because that's something that we're told on a regular basis, that it's all our fault. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the data is very clear on this point. Uh, if you count emissions um, from consumption, so the emissions that are caused by uh, consumption activities of the kind that you just mentioned, what you see is that uh, the richest 1% of humanity has emitted more than twice as much as the poorest half of humanity since 1990. This according to figures that came from the Stockholm Environment Institute and Oxfam recently. And this pattern reappears on every scale in every country. Uh, figures specifically for my country, Sweden, were recently uh, published and uh, it's, it's, the same, uh, uh, it's the same picture. The, the, the very richest elite uh, accounts for an absolutely disproportionate amount of uh, uh, emissions, notably from how they travel. So rich people have a, a, a thing for, for private jets, 
for uh, super yachts, for uh, for SUVs, and for for combining them and traveling like hell all over the world. Uh, the, uh, quite ironically, uh, uh, Bill Gates is about to publish a book on how to solve the climate crisis while he is investing in uh, a, a corporation uh, that leads the private jet business in the UK and uh, in other countries. And the, the other aspect apart from consumption here is precisely investment, because what drives business as usual is fundamentally investment in expanding uh, fossil fuel production and consumption. And investment decisions are, of course, not uh, uh, shared in, a, in any kind of even or democratic fashion, but are, to the contrary, extremely centralized in the hands of very few individuals in the ruling classes that decide on where they're going to invest their money. And the the inequality here is increasing year by year because our societies are becoming more and more unequal, which means that the money is centralized at the top of society. And that's where the decisions are taken about where to place this money. So, no, we I mean, the, the, the picture here is rather the other way around. Their responsibility for driving the climate crisis is becoming more and more uh, concentrated to the top of the pyramid for uh, for every year uh, because our societies are so extremely unequal and you you see this you see this for uh, um, for emissions from air travel from suvs uh, from from transportation in general from private consumption and you see it even more when you look at it, how investments produce emissions so what if the ruling class, what if their argument is that they, we just didn't know? That's the big thing that we always hear from the wealthy. We had no idea that we were benefiting from the exploitation of others, and we didn't even know the level of exploitation. And often with the use of subcontractors, you can do as much as possible to hide that kind of exploitation. So what would you say to members of the ruling class who simply argued, we didn't know? Yeah, I mean, if, if some cotton manufacturer emerged from the grave, uh, having died in 1840 or something like that, I would accept that argument, and maybe in, in 1920 as well. But knowledge of fossil fuel combustion driving climate uh, change has actually been fairly widespread in the contemporary ruling class. And in oil and gas companies in particular, and we have new revelations coming <laughs> almost on an annual basis of just how far back this knowledge went in the auto industry as well. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, major players like General Motors and ExxonMobil and Chevron were well aware that they were fanning the flames of um, uh, this global disaster, and yet they proceeded. And not only did they proceed with it, but they they acted to sow doubt about facts that they knew themselves and uh, create a campaign of disinformation that has been incredibly harmful to any attempt to address this problem. And this is, I mean, this story is very well documented and uh, a lot of peer-reviewed uh, scientific literature is demonstrating just how, um, how uh, wickedly and viciously these corporations behaved in the critical decades when they were among the first to 
receive the knowledge of what was about to happen and uh, responded by by uh, concealing the truth and saying something completely different and uh, denying the climate crisis and uh, going for all-out expansion of fossil fuel production. This history is going to live with us for a long time, and I think that eventually it will catch up with the capitalists that uh, that were guilty for this crime. And I mean, there are people in the climate movement arguing for owners of ExxonMobil and other climate criminals to be put on trial. And I think in the long run, that's that's an entirely decent demand. This sounds a lot like the revelations that happened with the tobacco industry. And we saw establishment mainstream media jump all over that story. They loved that story. They carried that story and went with it for a very, very long time. To you, what explains why these revelations of corporate complicity within climate change and hiding the truth about climate change, why is that not getting the coverage that the tobacco industry did? Does it have something to do with, well, I don't even want to put any words in your mouth. So why do you think that is the case? Why do you think it is that they're willing to cover the tobacco industry concealing the truth, but not those who caused climate change? Tobacco is a very, or was a very small segment of of uh, the capitalist economy compared to fossil fuels, which are absolutely integral to that economy. And it's much more difficult to isolate fossil fuel companies and, uh, how shall I put it, to, to ostracize them from... Uh, what goes for decent uh, entrepreneurship and uh, economic behavior than it is with the tobacco companies. I mean, uh, uh, corporations like ExxonMobil, or for that matter, Saudi Aramco and and uh, the state-owned uh, oil and gas and coal uh, corporations around the world, these are some of the, of the largest corporations that exist and have ever existed. And the, uh, the implication of the climate crisis is that they have to cease to exist as entities extracting fossil fuels. And that that explains a lot of the uh, uh, difficulty in speaking truthfully about these matters, because the 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 implication of the whole problem is that the the, the transformation of, of the society will have to be enormous. Can civil protest, we just got, you were discussing this earlier, can civil protest be successful? Can protest that's so focused on not being rude, can it be effective in stopping something as big as climate change? Do you believe that civil protest is in itself proving to be increasingly ineffective within neoliberalism, late capitalism, whatever you want to call the political economy within which we currently find ourselves? Do you think that it's not just climate change activism, but all kinds of activism are finding shortcomings when it comes simply to having civil protest? Yeah, well, yes. Uh, I, I mean, the, the general challenge for progressive forces in our historical era is precisely this. How do we how do we project power? How do we build power? How do we seize power? How do we uh, change societies? Uh, uh, you know, every every strategy that is outlined and attempted uh, tends to reach some kind of a dead end or, or at least that's the feeling among among many of us. But on the other hand, you have cases in quite recent history of uh, social movement mobilization that actually achieves uh, something and manages to, to wring concessions 
from ruling classes. I, I think the 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 movement for Black Lives in the U.S. managed to um, to extract uh, quite a few uh, concessions, even though they were local and uh, limited regarding the police system in the U.S. With you know initiatives to cut back on police budgets and things like that, and put the the idea of, of defunding the police on the agenda. And that is obviously an entirely a result of the wave of mobilization following the, the murder of, of George Floyd. To, to some extent, in similarity with this, you can see the climate movement in the US, in Europe and elsewhere being successful in certain cases and on small scales, having small victories as in stopping a pipeline project here, uh, blocking uh, an, a, a terminal expansion there, uh, winning a struggle around uh, an oil refinery or a coal mine. So it's not like we are completely impotent and completely powerless. Uh, it's just that we need to get much stronger than we have been so far, and we need to do it very fast. But I don't see any other way forward because none of these problems will be solved on their own. And the, our enemies, including, uh, obviously, as we've seen in the past weeks, those on the far right are very aggressive and quite, uh, quite capable of, uh, of causing a lot of uh, social uh, turbulence from their side. Uh, so just sitting back and waiting for, for these things to sort themselves out is not an option. And the, the only alternative I can see is to try to amplify to, to amplify our strength. Uh, and that entails, I think, also escalating our, our, our tactical, uh, uh, yeah, our tactical behavior in our uh, struggle against the fossil fuel infrastructure which you say should lead to a kind of militant radicalism that is more confrontational. And you write many critics of nonviolence that is widespread, is universal within the climate change movement. Uh, and most of its intellectuals would shudder at the thought of another stage beyond absolute nonviolence for a particular doctrine has taken hold, that of pacifism. It comes in two forms. Moral pacifism says that it always is wrong to commit acts of violence. Moral pacifism cl claims to hold life in the highest regard and detest its violent termination. But a defensive act that saves lives and reduces violence is unacceptable to it insofar as it involves active physical force. This seems flawed. It also appears to yield a priori to the uh, worst forms of evil, precisely those agents most intent on taking us many, as many innocent lives as possible. Fascist mass murders, for instance, will be the least receptive to meek, nonviolent opposition. Indeed, the precepts of pacifism have often come across as exhortations to surrender, to suffering and atrocity. As you were just mentioning, in the wake of the siege of the U.S. Capitol last week, there is a debate in the United States over whether and especially amongst the left, over whether intolerance should be tolerated. If those who proclaim tolerance must have that tolerance towards everyone, including the intolerant, or else they are in fact intolerant. Is tolerating intolerance, in your opinion, surrendering to intolerance? Can tolerance overcome intolerance? Can moral pacifism become overcome violent fascism? I mean, fascism and the struggle against it has always been the weakest point of pacifism because the idea that you can combat 
something like the Nazi regime in Germany by nonviolent means uh, was a hard, hard case to make. And Gandhi uh, tried to do it and it didn't work out very well. He even uh, encouraged the Jews to more or less uh, enjoy their suffering as a form of spiritual sacrifice. And that's that's the kind of over-the-top pacifism that really becomes morally repugnant in the end. But when it comes to resistance against fascism, it has had a tendency to include physical confrontation with fascists. Um, and, and, and it's, as everyone knows, the fascist regimes in uh, Europe came to an end only when they were overpowered by a, a larger physical force, be it from partisans or from the Soviet army or a combination of the two, or with some help from the West. Uh, and uh, uh, it's very hard to see fascism having uh, ended in any other fashion. So there, there is a, a very strong case, I think, to be made for uh, militant anti-fascist resistance. Now, if you if you accept that, uh, if you also accept that certain forms of militancy and property destruction have been essential components of a lot of emancipatory struggles in history, including struggles that uh, climate intellectuals like to point to as uh, analogs for what we're trying to do in the climate movement, such as the struggle against slavery or the struggle for uh, uh, woman, women's right to vote or the struggle against apartheid in South Africa or the struggle against various dictatorships around the world. All these struggles have included some components of property destruction and confrontation with the uh, uh, forces of the, the ruling order. It's it's dishonest from a strictly historical point of view to, to say something else. Now, if that's the case, should we conclude that we in the climate movement can do without any kind of confrontation of this kind because our enemy is weaker or more vulnerable? Or should we rather conclude that we might perhaps perhaps have to step up our game just as, as uh, uh, our forebears in those various uh, social movements in history have had to do at critical junctures. That's the case uh, that I try to make in this book, that we're now in such a dire situation and we've tried with completely peaceful, polite, civil means, with no property destruction involved, uh, just maximum uh, restraint and absolutely peaceful civil disobedience. That's as far, generally speaking, with very few exceptions, that's as far as the climate movement has uh, has dared to go uh, in the decades that uh, it's it's it has existed. And we haven't reached far enough by employing only these methods. And the time uh, might have come to try something different. And to, to again take the, uh, take the parallel of the BLM movement, I think what happened after the murder of George Floyd was that the, the people of Minneapolis stormed the police precinct, uh, uh, sorry, the police station in the third precinct and, and, uh, and uh, uh, burnt it down to the ground. And that was the catalyst for the movement. The, 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 the key incident, as I understand it from a distance, that made the movement leap to another mass scale because what that act showed was that the police is not above the law uh, and the police is not uh, beyond our power. 
we can actually go in and uh, break down police infrastructure if we exercise our power in the street. And the climate movement needs something similar. Are climate change activists, in your opinion, in any way denying the entrenched power of the causes of climate change through their passivity? Are, are climate change activists actively trying not to blame the market or capitalism? Well, no, I, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that climate activists are guilty of passivity because that, that's not I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, climate activists are virtually by definition the people that are most active in trying to combat uh, the climate crisis. And I think there is a pretty general awareness in the movement about the nature of the enemy and how deeply entrenched it is. But I think the movement has, uh, and here I'm, I'm thinking in particular of Extinction Rebellion, but also parts of the of the U.S. climate movement uh, and, and elsewhere. I'm, I'm talking about the global north. Uh, the movement has committed itself to an extreme version of pacifism that I think uh, uh, makes it difficult to combat this enemy with, uh, with the whole panoply of methods needed to make progress against it. So it's not that, that climate activists or the climate movement are, are passive, uh, although we've been this year because of the pandemic. It's more that uh, the movement hasn't dared to escalate as it might have to do. That, that would be my view. Just a couple more questions for you, Andreas. You cite the official handbook of Extinction Rebellion, where Roger Halam, co-founder and ideologue, states there are two types of disruption, violent and nonviolent. The social science is totally clear on this. Violence does not optimize the chance of successful progressive outcomes. In fact, it almost always leads to fascism and authoritarianism. The alternative, then, is nonviolence. Why do you think there is this active attempt at erasing the success of violence in having progressive outcomes of uh, protests? Do you believe there's a racial component to saying that yeah, violence yeah, does yeah. not always or ever work? Or, or even uh, is there a class component? Why do you yeah. think that is? Yes, there there is a race component and a class component because... Uh, the climate movement and not the least the, uh, the 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 intelligentsia of the climate movement if you like the intellectual strata the the layers of the climate movement that expound on strategy and and formulate these ideas uh, are, are people that belong to a certain kind of white middle class and uh, do not have any other political position contrary to that class uh, uh, and th that, I think, is part of the explanation for why the movement has taken on the, this extreme pacifism. And the, the quotation that you just uh, read from uh, from Roger Hallam is one of the most hair-raising <laughs> accounts of the history of, of social struggle that I think you can find. Uh, it's just so so deeply fundamentally false that it's almost uh, revolting. Now, uh, yes, if you look at something like the Movement for Black Lives in the U.S. or the Yellow Vests in France, these are social movements that have not been committed to a similarly doctrinaire and dogmatic pacifism. And these are movements that have had other 
uh, class and race components uh, and, and bases than, uh, than much of the climate movement in the global north. So yes, the climate movement has to, uh, uh, to extricate itself from, from the white middle class politically and demographically and socially and, and, and broaden its base to include uh, much more uh, working class people and people that are uh, non-white. And then I think you'll see a different attitude towards these things and a different attitude towards the police because the, the, the love for the police that a group like uh, Extinction Rebellion uh, flaunted when it uh, was uh, at its height in 2019. That love for the police just can't go on. It's stone dead after the events of, of, of the past year in the US and elsewhere. Uh, and if if the climate movement is going to break out of that sort of white middle class fold, it, com it has to have a completely different attitude to the police. Just one last question for you, Andreas. Uh, but before I ask you our last question, I got to tell you something. Last week, we got an email from a listener by the name of Tove, who writes, this is officially the first fan mail of my life. My name is Tove. I came to Sweden from Poland to study human ecology last fall. But Andreas' mom decided to screw me over and go on a parental leave instead of teaching me anything. <laughs> So I just wanted to say congratulations on the birth of your child. I heard the child in the background earlier, so congratulations, Andres. Thank you, Chuck. And also thanks for screwing over, Tove. Oh, he's great. One last question for you, Andres. And as, as we always do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with social, social ecology scholar Andreas Malm, author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Leaving, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. You can find all of our interviews with Andreas at thisishell.com when you search on his last name, Malm, M-A-L-M. We spoke with him about his book, uh, Fossil Capital, back in 2015, which we named as one of our favorite books to be featured on the show that year. And we also discussed his later book, The the Progress of the Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World back in 2018. Andreas is Associate Senior Lecturer in the Department of Human Ecology at Sweden's Lund University. So our final question from you, the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response, is you write the fact that this that Gandhi can emerge as an icon of the climate movement, not to mention our scientist of the human spirit, attest the depth of the repression and political consciousness between the 20th and the 21st century. If the movement needs a lodestar from the past, it might as well choose the Sudanese Mahdi, Nostradamus, Rasputin, or Sabatai Zevi. And needless to say, the mass mobilizations led by the Indian National Congress had impressive features, and the Salt Mart and the withdrawal of cooperation with British authorities sent inspiration down the ages, but to attribute independence to them exclusively is once again to look at history with one eye. This is kind of a two-part question, but I think you can make it into one answer. Why do you not see Gandhi as the totem of nonviolent success that others do? And to you, what explains this exaltation of Gandhi that you believe is not earned or deserved? Because I swear to God, I have had a million conversations with people and I've asked them, so why are you uh, using a nonviolent approach? And they always say, because of the success of Gandhi. It's almost like it's semiotics for nonviolence without actually knowing what the history is of Gandhi. So why do you not see Gandhi as the totem of nonviolent success? And to you, what, what explains that exaltation of Gandhi? Well, well, we could speak for hours about Gandhi. Uh, I have a bit of a hang-up on him, I, I guess. Uh, I mean, because there is so much Gandhi 
piety and uh, sanctimoniousness, uh, just as you say, swirling around uh, among people who want to change the world, but uh, use gentle means to do so. And uh, the the history about Gandhi and, and Indian independence has been whitewashed and sanitized as so many other histories used by, uh, by pacifists. And uh, for a start, Gandhi was not a consistent uh, opponent of violence. To the contrary, he uh, repeatedly uh, enlisted in and tried to have his fellow Indians enlisted in the British Imperial Army, including in the First World War, where he promised the, the, the British that he would send uh, millions of, of Indians into the battlefields to fight for the British Army. So he was against violence in opposition to the British occupation, but he was very much in favor of uh, Indians using violence side by side with their British occupiers as a strategy to prove to the British that they were uh, as uh, strong men as the Brits. Uh, now, we I don't think we have time to go into the depth of the history here, but the, 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 in the, the, the victory of the Indian independence movement uh, cannot only be attributed to the non-violent mass movements that, that Gandhi led. These movements were part of the process. I'm not denying that, and I, I don't think anyone is. But that process had many other features as well, including a Second World War that made Britain retreat from quite a few of its colonies. So uh, uh, the, the desire for a history without any kind of violent confrontation with the uh, ruling classes and the, the, the forces of the status quo, that desire serves the, the, the pious wish that we can accomplish uh, what we need to accomplish with, uh, with no sacrifices from, from our own side and, and with... Uh, uh, with, with, uh, how should I put it, with fairly comfortable means of social change. Uh, I don't think that is uh, an accurate reflection of where we stand, of the character of uh, uh, of our enemies, and what we need to to do to try to minimize the damage of. Uh, catastrophic climate breakdown and other aspects of, of the ecological crisis. Where we will have to dare to be a little bit more bold uh, in our strategic thinking than this kind of Gandhi uh, paradigm uh, allows. So, Andreas, when you do meet your student, Tove, remember that he listens to This Is Hell, so please be easy on him, will you? Yeah, I will. I will. I will. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Andreas. It's always great Thanks to hear so your much. voice. Great Thanks to have you back you. on the show. You know Thanks I'm going to annoy so you in the future to have you back on. Thank, Thanks so much for having me. Thank All you. All right. Take care. Andreas Malm, author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. And if you want to have a hard copy of a book that you'd like to read on mass transportation or maybe as you're flying in a plane somewhere, it would be awesome to be holding a book in your hands that says How to Blow Up a Pipeline learning to fight in a world on fire. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about evil, so you do the math. <laughs> capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name 
the austerity bill. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Jess, how are our listeners answering this week's question from hell again? Which is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? Greg M. says, let them eat cake act. (laughs) Dan K., release the Kraken. Aaron B., the Tina act. (laughs) There's no alternative. Very good. good. (laughs) Um, Andrea T., ramen lice and fearsville. (laughs) Jacob H., the this is who we are act. (laughs) Stephen S., uh, the tide act. Chris L, the Saving Your Social Security from Yourself Act. <laughs> That's a really good one for the austerity bill. That's awesome. What are they going to name the austerity bill? Braden S, Healing America. Aaron D, Trump Care. <laughs> <laughs> Eric T, the Kill the Poor's Bill. Wouldn't Biden Care be good too? <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeffrey D, Suggs It. <laughs> Bradley R. Promessa for the mainland. Nathaniel T. The Despairs Act. Adam A. America's Turn in the Barrel. Despairs Act is pretty good for Kara's Act. That's pretty good. And lastly, Benjamin C. Pago is Fuego. (laughs) We'll have even more of your answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner at the end of Thursday's show following Jeff Dorton in the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeffrey visits the U.S. military's violations of the hospitality code. You can see all of our merchandise right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Jess, who, wait, hold a second, I had to read something else here. Uh, Let's see. Of course, you can always become a regular supporter of This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday live at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is posted shortly after at the same place. Each week on Patreon, not only do you get a new monologue from me besides the scene, uh, you know, the stuff that you get from our regular show, you hear behind the scenes info about the show, and you get an archived interview that you cannot currently find anywhere else online. But you also get a discount on all of our merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. We want to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. Thanks to Nikos, Elia, Sleepy Cities, and Tyler. Apparently, a lot of people want to hear my take on what happened in the U.S. Capitol last Wednesday and how I'd been saying that was exactly what would happen if Trump lost the election, dating back to the first week of May, eight months before the looting. If only politicians in the media and many on the left had taken the assault on Michigan State Capitol a bit more seriously back in April, maybe we wouldn't be where we are today. So thanks again to Nikos Elia, Sleepy Cities, and Tyler, and thanks to the tithing-like commitment Kilter has shown to This Is Hell for so long by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We truly appreciate your years of support, Kilter, and we hope to see you and all of our listeners at our 25th anniversary party this year, whenever that is. Jess, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. 
Tomorrow, we're talking to Marsha Chatlin on her book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. That sounds really good. I'm really looking forward to having her on the show. We need to have more and more working class perspectives or perspectives on working class life to be in the media. And seeing as how establishment media won't be doing that, we'll be doing it here on This Is Hell. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell. And don't forget, we are still looking for volunteer board operators or remote assistance here on the show. If you would like to contribute to thisishell.com by working on it, all you have to do is email me at chuck at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest, Jess Lipka for producing, and Andreas Malm for being our guest. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>